I want some more Woodsboro whiskey, please. Sorry. It's like Ghostface said when Casey Becker got the answer wrong. Lucky for you, there's a bonus round. But poor Woodsboro whiskey, I'm afraid, is out. God dang it. Easy child. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. That goes back to I Know What You Did Last Summer, which will come out the year after Scream 1996. (sighs) Yo, Falsetto, what's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick pick? Though I am sharper than the buck knife used to slash and gash and scream from 1996, even I am sealed with limitations on selecting just one favorite line of dialogue in this great blood slick flick. I have a three-way tie for my favorite line of dialogue. Like the three-way killer reveal, trialogue in the kitchen, where Stu and Billy are educating Nev Campbell, Sidney Prescott, that is, on the motivations for the murders. Three-way tie. One, Billy Loomis says, with those dead, scary, Skeet Ulrich eyes, tell that to Cotton Weary. In that moment, you realize that he was in fact responsible for the murder of Sydney's mother one year prior. That is fucked up. It's a very important reveal, and Skeet Ulrich delivers it in fine fashion. Second, you have Sydney Prescott talking to Billy Loomis. Sydney starts, You sick fucks, you've seen one too many movies. Now, Sid, don't you blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. Shit. These guys clearly enjoy a horror flick. As do I. Does that make me unstable, Blood Red Devil? Yup. Lastly, you have the phone voice talking to Casey Becker. And I'm going to do my best iteration of Roger Jackson's ghost face voice. Name the killer in Friday the 13th. Jason! 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 I'm sorry. That's the wrong answer. No, no, it's not. It's not. It it was Jason. Afraid not. No way. Listen, it was Jason. I saw that movie 20 goddamn times. Then you should know that Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees, was the original killer. Jason didn't show up until the sequel. I'm afraid that was a wrong answer. You tricked me. Lucky for you, there's a bonus round. But poor Steve, I'm afraid he's out. That is a good fucking killer voice from a very astute, clever, diabolically maniacal killer. Some contender lines. Randy, oh, the great Randy, Jamie Kennedy. It's the millennium. Motives are incidental. I think he sprays banaca or something in his mouth as he says that. I'm not exactly sure. Motives are incidental. Another contender line of dialogue. Billy and Gail and Stu. Billy starts off, where the fuck is it? And then Gail, with her hands shaking, right here, asshole. I thought she was dead. And then Stu, she looked dead, man, still does. I like that scene because for the first time, you're really being reminded of, in a casual way, the fact that these are the guys that were wearing the ghost face costume. It was them. And that kind of pierces that veil between, well, it was an unknown killer, so you're not really making a connection to the killer. It was just a hooded reaper man. Now you know it was these two flesh-and-blood dudes that Sydney walked to class with amongst the skateboarders. And lastly, Tatum, who, unbeknownst to her, would generate an entire universal fanfare over this name for this killer. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. 
Ghostface. That is when you first hear the name uttered, Ghostface. And that is what he is on Wikipedia. He is known as Ghostface. Interestingly, when you look at the actual costume that they have been able to attribute who the hooded killer is wearing this costume, that Dewey says they sell him at every five and dime in the state. It says Father Death on that costume package. It does not say Ghostface. So there you have it. Red Devil, what might your favorite line of dialogue be in this blood, slick, but not slicker, slick flick pick? Well, those were pretty good ones, but I have to go with the Fonz, who plays the principal in this film. He just is hilarious. He's talking to these miscreants, and he says, You make me so sick. Your entire havoc-inducing, thieving, whoring generation disgusts me. (laughs) And honestly, I feel like I can relate to that. Yeah, he continues talking to them in that same moment. You desensitized little shits. You're both expelled. Get out. I love it. What about your favorite scene? Well, as you know me, indecisive till the last, it's a two-way tie. Sydney walking inside her McMansion with the sun setting in the background, looming. We already know evil is out there. Some acquaintance of hers, some schoolmate, was already brutally murdered along with her boyfriend. That happened in the first 10 minutes of the movie. But here we have Sydney alone. Her father has left town, or so we think. And the sun is setting. You got this great backyard patio. She's walking up like a second set of stairs that takes you from the patio to one of the doors on the side of her McMansion. It's just a very suffocatingly creepy moment because she's alone. The sun is setting. It's laden with foreboding. She takes a nap. And when she wakes up, it's now night. And then the phone starts ringing. What happened when she was asleep? It's just really, really cool. And I distinctly remember seeing that when I was young. It is a great house, and it is the only time that she is alone for a decent interval of time. She's either around Riley, she's around other people, she's around her boyfriend, but she's rarely all alone. But she is in this moment. And what unfolds is one of the greatest attacks in the franchise history. Also, when Red Right Red Devil Hand, okay, it's just Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, same song that will play at the beginning of Peaky Blinders, that very successful television show. But when that song is playing and the town is locking up due to curfew, these killings affect the whole town, not just a handful of teens. And this scene really drives home that point. And it makes me think of COVID. Closed up early for COVID or what have you. But in this case, there's a paper sign. Remember paper? Like papers and clipboards and pens. It was sexier then because you could actually had a physical inanimate item that you could place in the window that said closing early due to curfew. Now you would just send out a tweet. It's a reminder that this killer on the loose, or killers, is affecting this entire community. Not to mention the fact that I love Red Right Hand, and I love that it's kind of a recurring motif song throughout the franchise. Red Double, what is your favorite scene from this movie, Scream? I mean, it has to be the second half of the movie. When they're at Randy's house. It's Randy's house, right? Stu's. Oh. When they're at Stu's house, and Randy's discussing the rules of horror film, while they're watching a horror film, and then later, the exact things he was saying become true. Like, especially that scene where he's laying on the couch, and then Ghostface comes up behind him. Classic. As it's happening in Halloween, right before a jump scare. 1978's Halloween that's on the TV that he's watching. Right. Do you know why the killer spared Randy in that moment? Because he was a virgin? (laughs) I never even thought about that. I never even thought about the fact that Randy is a virgin and he doesn't die and scream. I never made that connection. 
But Nev Campbell is not a virgin by the end of the film, but she lives. Obviously, Gail Weathers, whore, strumpet, slattern, she's not a virgin and she lives. When I was young, and I watched this movie far too young to be watching a film such as this, someone told me he was spared because Stu and Billy liked him, like he was one of their friends, for Mm -hmm. real. Well, maybe, yeah. But I don't think that's what it is. I think they spare him because they can hear Sydney screaming in the distance. Because it's once Ghostface hears her screaming as she's like running through the field that doesn't have any crops growing in it, the killer turns and diverts his attention towards the quarry that escaped. Mm. That's my final answer. I think he just became distracted and Sydney was the real prize. He can always come back and get Jamie Kennedy at a later moment. Or his mother can get Jamie Kennedy at a later moment and scream too. Billy Loomis's mother, Mm. Mrs. Loomis. Now, you know how much I love this film, right? Yes, I do. And you love this film. Mm-hmm. We are currently looking at a Scream framed poster right over the monitor. It's the most recent Scream poster acquired, and it is for Scream 6, which is right around the Bloody River Bend. Did you pick that one because it has six in the M of Scream? No. Oh. But this time, Ghostface goes to New York, or as the song Cat Power goes, New York, New York, but I believe that is a cover song, and I believe that the original song came out long before then. We also are looking at a Toonie Terror figurine of Scream, Ghostface, wielding a knife, and running with clogs. They really look like clog boots to me. So he's going to do some polka 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 with his blade. What do you think about that? We have to post a picture of it for the audience. I mean the cinematic fanatics. Either or. Basically, if you think about it, Cinematic Fanatic is a specialized version of Podience. A subset Podience. They're all students. So Podience is all the students of a university. But Cinematic Fanatics are the students that are attending film class. Greetings, cinematic fanatics. Allow us the pleasure of ushering you through the spacious, two-storied, multiple points of ingress, $3 million casa, de stew, television set wearing on his face, murder television style, stabbed to a bloody goo stew mocker. Located in the middle of a forested enclave, at the end of an isolated block adjacent to nowhere, where two bi-curious, one a fucktard, the other increasingly furious, mask-wearing, intensely staring, lethal pairing of synchronized slashers, Billy at Sid glaring, phone-cloning, one-plot-bemoaning red herring, slicing up each other's torsos for when it comes to caution, these motherfucking mama's boys slash on the side of airing. Boom! That was a good one! Proud of yourself, worthwhile cinephile. This sleepy suburb is far from asleep. Of a killer's revenge, fuel bloodlust, Sid's waiting push-up bra deep. This is the slick flick where you scream, not let slip an imperceptible peep. For this is the town of Dark Woodsboro. Woodsboro. What are we enjoying, Blood Red Devil, as we do this cinematic adventure? Woodsford Reserve. Woodsboro Reserve. Woodsboro Woodsford Reserve whiskey. Mmm. Tastes like A-B negative blood. 
For this is the town of Dark Woodsboro, where ungentlemanly callers call and masked reapers reap. Whether in her high school bathroom or Dewey's Jeep, old Ghostface comes a callin', and the scares that follow with him ain't cheap, but cut and gut rather deep, for he, whether day, night, underfoot, or out of sight, still will creep. We offer the cushion for Sid's second floor leap, an emergency surgery for those wounds that slice deeper than skin fucking deep, via our whispered scream treat of Slick Flick Pick, an entertaining Slick Flick Explaining series, a desirable diversion from the main vein of Chemowalk Sessions. You are our cinematic fanatics. We, your worthwhile fucking cinephiles, for your 25th 25 episodes down. Episode, Blood Red Right Hand Devil, and I review one of our most sacred, sarcastic dialogue, sharper than a buck, screenplay, as well-oiled as the garage door motor's chain, satirical 90s slick flick pleasures, a pick that's proved a promising introductory entry into a tremendously successful franchise that still shocks our eyes with its unkillable ability to mesmerize, and have you, in an attempt to guess, the spine-thrilling, blood-spilling, killing culprit theorize. This ain't Elm Street or some knife-fingered, two-toned sweater-wearing villain lame, but a murderous mystery only solved if you look past the claims of a frame. Stew Bloody Goo aims for wild and insane, but the mild-mannered Billy remains rather tame and mild. They're both playing one flip-flop, turning you upside down and gutting you inside out, mind fuck of a game. This Wes bold and brave, not a craven, financially applauded, critically lauded flick remains brilliant, beautiful, brazen, and so very bloody slick. Though he directed a nightmare, this is a flick where the slasher is so slick, he'll slay in the day. For Freddy, you dream a dark little dream. Here, you'll scream a stark, echoing scream. But what if you merged into a nightmare scream? You'd have scream a little scream within your dream. This is a slick flick that will slash to a gash, cutting into a trio of genres. Mystery, horror, slasher. It transitions so seamlessly between genres and off simultaneously in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness. We offer you, regarding this fresh wound, revitalizing, iconic flick, in a reaper's polished mask sheen that's glossy, sleek, and slick, where expertly constructed set pieces are crafted and unexpected characters slashed to pieces in Scream, circa December 1996. Nothing on earth rhymes with Nev, except Engine Rev and Kiev. So instead, I will pronounce her Neve, and they will slash at to cleave Neve on the eve of her dead as an impaled doornail scream in outer space slut bag mother for whom she does still grieve. Though her boyfriend Billy delivers warm lines in a style sometimes chilly, do forgive Sid's beau as it's Maureen who's to blame for this Casey Becker prank call changing into Ghostface garb in a filthy bathroom stall. Hiding alongside the principal's office wall, Neil Prescott, red-handed, 
will take the fall. And is that Freddy Krueger I saw in Woodsboro High's goddamn hall? Recline cinematic fanatics in your favorite well-worn stale chair. Rustle up some popcorn, fresh as fuck, the antithesis to that stale-ass chair we just mentioned. Zoom in and zone out as we unwind the daily grind with a slick, ghost-facing flick pick. Scream is the flick, so very slick, hence our F-Stars pick. When slick flick pick is near, buck knife stick around till falsetto prophet's voice you hear. Lights, camera, action, lens distraction, and with the right slick flick pick, grant satisfaction. Red Devil and I are your worthwhile cinephiles. You're our cinematic fanatics. Together, we excitement unlock and run down the real world's unimaginative clock while feasting our eyes on this blood slick flick pick prize. Enter with us, you cinematic fanatics, into the realm of film's fantasy as we unwind the grind of reality. We offer you pick 25, slick flick pick. Two ghost-faced dudes deceive, then cleave Neve. Prescott, red-handed. Scream, 1996. Today, we'll discuss when it is better to, through a garage doggy door crawl instead of run, how a sharp knife kills better than a dullard with a gun, that Neve's hair looks pristine in either ponytail, down, or in a bun. Why Tatum's vampiric flesh, Tum Tum, is in need of some sun. And sipping potent bourbon each time Sid's mom is called a strumpet, trollop, whore, or slut proves rather fun. Your worthwhile cinephile, falsely accused it was a cloned cell phone, falsetto prophet, and red herring caught red-handed blood trail, blood. Red devil. That was a fantastic introduction. Don't you agree? Mm-hmm. These are some conceptualized contender titles that if this film was not called Scream, it would be called one of the following, in my mind. Gentleman caller remains unknown with a cloned cell phone. Blood red herring. Who knew Skeet and Stu would leave a blood-stained goo on Neve's tennis shoe? Offering knife to your future wife. Don't let the killer cut the cake. Cloned phone charade. Reach out and gut someone. Off the collar got cut. Boom! Those are some great title options. Now it is time for TT or Trivialized Trivia. Oh, but wait. We're going to script that flip. Red Devil, what is your first memory of watching Scream? Well, you know me. I can't remember things like that. I can tell you that mine was when I had rented it from Blockbuster. Actually, I hadn't rented it. What I did was I purchased a previously viewed VHS cassette for like eight bucks. And I went home and I got some stew, as in stew the bloody goo. I got some stew with some carrots and some potatoes that my parents had made. And I sat upstairs in one of my dad's old office chairs. I ate the stew and I watched Scream. And I was absolutely mesmerized, and I have been in love with it ever since. It's not even classic horror, although soon I, I guess it may very well be a classic, as it has been over 25 years. And if a car is over 25 years old, I think in some ways it can be considered a classic. So maybe Scream at this point is considered classic horror. That means I'm a classic. It's true. Does that make you double classic at 50, or does it reverse and it, you're just neutral? Those are your golden years. Henry Winkler, who played Principal Hembry, was asked to go uncredited because the producers did not want to detract any attention from the younger, lesser-known actors. 
I didn't even know that he was the dude from The Wonder Years. Happy Days. I didn't even know that he was the dude from Happy Days. How did he not know? I never watched Happy Days. I believed in more maudlin days. You're not very American. Mm. And his jacket, the Fonz's jacket, is in his office at the school. It's a little Easter egg. I don't know why they call it an Easter egg unless you're watching it on or around Easter. It really should just be called like a hidden treasure. It's more applicable that way. When the phone slips out of Billy's, that's Skeet Ulrich's hand, and it hits Stu on the back of the head, it was completely unintentional. Director Wes Craven kept it in because of Matthew Lillard's realistic reaction. Yep, totally believable. And he's already bleeding profusely, so he's probably in a lot of pain. This is interesting. The scene where the killer is sneaking up behind Randy, which you had spoken about when he's watching the original Halloween film, and he gets spared in that moment. It is the only one where the person in the costume is actually one of the actors rather than a stuntman. Skeet specifically asked if he could wear the costume for one scene. Isn't that crazy? That would be me. I'd want to wear it. Now, Skeet Ulrich, he has had an interesting career. First of all, I love the name Skeet. That's like a great skateboarder name. But this guy obviously got a lot of notoriety for playing this killer, which would prove to be memorable. I think he really, really shined in Jericho. He plays Jake Green. He's the protagonist of the show Jericho, which tragically only lasted two seasons, and the second season was cut ridiculously short on account of the writer's strike. But he is such a good actor. He's very intense. And he also would go on to kind of bring it back around. Even though he made a lot of B-movies, he went on to be a semi-important character in Riverdale. He plays Jughead's convict father. And he's a leader of the Serpents, I believe. I don't remember. It's been so long since I've seen that. But he's a great actor, and he's terrifying in this film when the big reveal finally occurs. When Sydney comes out of the closet and stabs Billy with an umbrella, the stuntman was supposed to hit a pad on Skeet's chest. The first hit the pad, but the second slipped and hit him in the chest. Skeet's chest has metal wiring beneath the skin from open-heart surgery he had as a child, which caused him intense pain. Thus, when the umbrella accidentally struck it, his shocked expression and scream were genuine. Wes, good man Wes over there, Wes who can expect nothing less, kept it in because it was authentic. When the killer smashes his head through a window at Drew Barrymore, and she hits him in the face with a phone, that's actually Wes Craven in the costume at that moment. Okay, I remember talking to you about this one. Kevin Williamson, who wrote the screenplay, he felt it was essential for the audience to learn why the antagonists became killers. But he also felt it was potentially scarier if they had no motive. Opinions at the studio were split. Some who wanted the motive, some did not. As there were two killers, Williamson decided basically to split the baby. Billy Loomis had the motive of maternal abandonment, while Stu basically just felt a peer pressure. I like the motive. How do you feel about the motive reveal? I like the crazy one. Stu's motive, where it's about the movies, you know? Oh, yeah. I like that because I feel that was also relevant to the time. One of the vice president's wives in the 90s had this huge campaign about rating movies and protecting our children. But that's kind of what came to mind. Now, this doesn't really mean a whole lot because everybody's a suspect, as Randy Meeks will point out in several of these films going forward. But Randy Meeks, the video store clerk, horror movie aficionado, he correctly identifies Stu and Billy as the killers during the film. He accuses Stu at the beginning talking about how he and Casey used to date, and then he accuses Billy in a scene at the video store. He was right. 
He just didn't know how right he was. Now, this was a red herring or blood red herring when Wes Craven shines the camera right on Sheriff Burke's boots, which are identical to the killer's boots. But this was clearly just an attempt at misdirection. Now, there's also some clues that the killer must be familiar with Stumacher's house. Because when he first starts chasing Sydney throughout the house, he cuts her off in an instant when she heads downstairs by walking through the other door, as if the killer knows the house like the back of his hand. The attic, I never noticed this. I, I swear to God, I didn't. The attic also has a blink or you'll miss it detail in the background as Sydney runs inside it. This is right before she falls or is essentially assisted out the window. There's a doll and a diorama that resembles Casey Becker. This would mean that Stu had planned her murder with Billy before the attack and had the diorama as a reference point. That reminds me of Saw. We're going to have to go back and I know. watch that. But that's what Saw did, where the Saw killer, Jigsaw, he would have these little kind of Play-Doh miniaturized versions of his very diabolical attacks. At the start of the film, when Sydney and Billy are together, this is a cover song. It's Don't Fear the Reaper by Gus, which originally was by Blue Oyster Cult, and it's one of my favorite songs. But that song is playing, which is funny because it preemptively reminds you Oh, wait, this is the killer. He's a reaper. I never thought about that. I never thought about this either. Hold on to your butts. The two students who are expelled because they're running through the hallways wearing ghost face masks, that was meant to let you know there's two killers. I never, ever, ever made that connection. And as far as horror movies within horror movies, at the beginning, the parents of Casey Becker, the father says to head on down to the McKinsey's. That is exactly what Lori told Lindsay and Tommy in 1978 John Carpenter's Halloween. Crazy fucking shit. I also really like this business where Drew Barrymore and Nev Campbell did not meet Roger Jackson, the guy who plays the voice on the phone, before shooting commenced. Whenever they are talking on the phone to the killer, they are actually talking to him. In fact, none of the cast met him. Wes Craven thought that would be better to bring out the shock reactions. Oh, I totally agree. That's interesting, because I always thought when there was a scene where there's a back and forth dialogue on the phone, that typically the actor was speaking to nothing. I didn't really think about that either. That's a good point. And that's crazy for me to get my head around where you're seeing it on film and you just assume the two actors are staring at each other like in the coffee shop scene in the movie Heat, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, where they're actually talking back and forth. But in a lot of situations in film, you have an actor talking to a blank wall. Right. That's crazy. Like to be able to get in that zone where you can like summon their presence, even though you know you're talking to a wall. I guess that's what acting is all about. Now here's, this is for those unpardonable pedants out there that worry about every little thing. During production, Ghostface's signature black robe was going to be white to make him appear even more like a ghost. This was changed in fear of people comparing the costume to those that the KKK or Ku Klux Klan wear. White supremacists always ruining everything for everybody. Is that not fucking ridiculous? Because blood would have looked so much better on a white costume. Oh, that's true. That's true. But to be fair, I really like the black. Uh, I think the black is really scary. It's more mysterious. He's harder to see at night. Yeah. Plus, his hood would have been down. I'm just going to say that. His hood, like, it's not like his hood is at a point like Ku Klux Klan. I thought that whole thing was ridiculous. If they made this movie and they called it Scary Movie instead of Scream, which is what they originally intended, and they had a white ghost face with a black mask, I don't think anyone would have made that connection. It's ridiculous. Just like when I just did this episodic review, Slick Flick Pig, A Predator 2 with Wham Bam Cam. Roger Ebert spent three sentences talking about how he felt that the film was racist. He said that the Predator was a iteration of urban black males. That's what the Predator was supposed to signify. Are you fucking kidding me? I love Predator. It's a goddamn alien. You're going to like this one, Red Devil. I'll read it. 
Freddie Prince Jr. Audition for the role of Stu. He's too cute for Stu. Sorry. I could see him playing Psycho, though. I could see it. I thought about it for about playing 30 Psycho? seconds, because I know you were going to talk about... I could see him being good in that role, oh. where he's in the kitchen, and he's got the crazy eyes, and he's like, yeah, come on. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Like, I could see him being crazy. That's a, to his credit. Yeah, to his credit. But he's too cute to be bad. Now, I briefly mentioned this earlier. Dewey says the reason the police are not able to track down this costume is because, and I quote, it's sold in every five and dime in the state. Today, as of 2022, Ghostface has become the best-selling Halloween costume of all fucking time. And you used to have one until somebody who you married made you get rid of it. If that does not tell you how indelible this human creature wearing a ghost mask is, I don't know what would. I have a framed picture of some original Ghostface art. It is a watercolor where it looks kind of gothic, and he's just standing there, this lone ghost face figure, and he's holding a sharp butt knife covered in blood, and it looks fucking awesome. I remember I was wearing the ghost face costume a lifetime ago, and I went out to the garage in the middle of the day. My mother came out to smoke a cigarette, and it scared the shit out of her, and it was fucking crazy. You tried to get me on a plot to scare Archangel. Remember that? Yeah, it worked pretty well, too, because he was already creeped out. We were outside, and then you turned off all the lights. Yeah, you were house-sitting at this nice house in a McMansion, kind of like Nev Campbell's house. Rebecca Gayhart auditioned for the role of Tatum Riley. I would have been fine with that, but I really like Rose McGowan for this role. I think it's a perfect fit, and I think she's a great friend to Sydney. But scheduling conflicts prevented this from happening. However, not only would she turn up later and scream too, playing a sorority sister, but she would also go on in Urban Legend, which came out the year after that, where she would be the psycho killer. She has great curly hair. Great hair, pretty eyes. But what's interesting is that in Scream 2, which we will do one day, I thought it was fascinating that one of the original plot threads was that she and another one of her sorority sisters were supposed to be the killers. And it was supposed to throw you off because it was two females. Lastly, Tatum wears a number 10 jersey shirt. This was bothering me. Wes Craven is such a creative and clever director. I figured there had to be a reason for the number 10. Red Devil and I were trying to figure it out. Like, was it body count? No. Ten people did not die in this film. It's the same kind of shirt Johnny Depp's character wore in Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984. Rose McGowan admitted in an interview years later she was completely unaware of that. How about that? Does this movie scare you, Red Devil? Yup. Scream is a 1996 American slasher film directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson. It's got a tip-top cast. You already know who's in it. It follows a high school student, Sad Sydney. She's so tortured, but I love her. And her group of friends in the fictional town of Woodsboro, California. Cheers to Woodsford, Woodsboro Reserve, oh, who become the targets of a mysterious killer in a Halloween costume known as Ghost Face. Inspired by the real-life case of the Gainesville Ripper, Scream was influenced by Williamson's passion for horror films, especially Halloween. The screenplay, originally titled Scary Movie, was bought by Dimension Films and was retitled by the Weinstein Brothers just before filming was complete. I never realized how many pies of film the Weinstein Brothers had their hands in. Oh, yeah. But it's a lot. All up in Hollywood. The film received positive reviews and was a financial success. Boom! Not only do I love this film, and it deserves its place in the annals of Slick Flick Pick, but it was financially successful. It was critically successful, and Roger Ebert gave it three out of four motherfucking stars. You want to talk about how successful it was financially? $15 million budget made $173 million. That is one fuck of a turnaround. Also, the soundtrack by Marco Beltrami was acclaimed, 
and was cited as, I shit you not, one of the most intriguing horror scores composed in years. The score has since reached cult status. Scream marked a change in the genre as it cast already established and successful actors, which was considered to have helped it find a wider audience, including a significant female viewership. Scream's success spawned a series of sequels, beginning with Scream 2, 1997. That is a crazy fast turnaround. I keep saying Scream, but what this film really should be called is Two Ghostface Dudes Deceive Then Cleave Neve Prescott Red-Handed which happens to be the title of this slick flick pick. And it's also a rare horror film that the sequels hold the fuck up. Scream 2 is amazing. In fact, by a lot of accounts, it's equal to, if not surpassing, the original. Scream 3 is different. It's definitely different. It's like a tonal shift. But I love Scream 3, and I especially love the last 30 minutes at the McMansion. And I love the undercurrent of the seedy side of Hollywood and Hollywood film directors. Scream 4, which came out many, many years after Scream 3, was fucking fantastic and one of the more horrifying of the lot. And Red Devil and I love Scream 5. Yeah, the reveal at the end of that is amazing. It's so fucking crazy. And we're going to see Scream 6 here in a couple of weeks. hey What do you know about the Gainesville Ripper case? Nothing. Williamson talks about it. There was a, he was watching a series of grisly murders by the Gainesville Ripper, and he became concerned about intruders finding an open window in the house where he was staying. He was concerned that maybe they had crept in in the interim. He was inspired to draft an 18-page script treatment about a young woman alone in a house who was taunted over the phone and then attacked by a masked killer. Question. Do you think the first 10 minutes of this film, where Drew Barrymore gets got, do you think it could have been done even better, even scarier, more proficiently? Or do you think that was as good as you think it could have possibly been done? No, I thought it was perfect. Because first, it's like unassuming... Also, if you grew up in the 90s, I mean, that was very real. You being alone, you obviously have to be tied to your home because you have your cordless, right? (laughs) It's just funny because even then we knew that if you didn't have a phone, even though there was a million places you could be, you had to be stationed to your home. Right. Because you never knew when a friend might call and ask you to do something. Yup. And remember three-way calls? That was always so hard to figure out. I did those on occasion, but usually... It would be only to achieve some sort of purpose where we were trying to make some group plans or something. But I can't remember a time where I had like a long three-way call with a couple of buddies just to shoot the shit. By June 95, and remember this film was released in 96, Williamson brought the scary movie script to his agent. Now I'm not saying it's a scary movie script. I'm saying it was going to be called Scary Movie. Rob Paris, who was his agent, warned him that the level of violence and gore would make it impossible to sell. Well, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that nothing is impossible because that would make me look like a fucking buffoon. But following the scripts purchased by Miramax, Williamson was in fact required to remove much of the gorier content, such as graphic depictions of the internal organs of gutted murder victims rolling down their legs. The most disturbing aspect of that phrase is rolling. They catch me rolling, they hating. You try to catch me riding with my guts rolling down my belly. However, once Craven was secured as director, he was able to bring much of the excised content back. You know what that reminds me of? The way life works. So for example, I can tell you that it's difficult to make independent films these days. And maybe it always was. But if you're this mysterious director and you want to make an independent film that has like original content and it's not a sequel and it's not a remake and it's not a recycle and it's not a reconstituted film. If it's not riding on the coattails of some already established overarching or widespread, notorious, or lauded production, it's difficult to get funding. 
it's difficult to get proper funding when you're trying to create original content because the financial backers are very reluctant to put down money for something that they don't know if it's going to be a hit or not. And so that's why so many people are making these Marvel movies because they know that if they can pick a character that already has some familiarity with a target audience, they can make this film and maybe strike gold. The problem with that is while these are cash cows, the originality and the rawness and the authenticity of that filmmaking craft goes down the shitter. An exception to this is Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan cranks out a lot of completely original content. Inception, Memento, even his takes on the Batman trilogy. There was a lot of cinematic license that was taken. He is very creative and he, he's one of the few directors that generates original content such as Dunkirk. And he tells it in a way that generates $600 million or more. But a lot of these actors, the Christopher Nolans of the world, they can't get funding to engage in these independent projects because nobody wants to take a risk on them. They want the cottage industry, cookie cutter, playing it safe, the Tom Brady, New England Patriots way of let's make something that we already know we have an audience for. And more often than not, it's disappointing and it's diluting and I fucking hate it. Whereas I love Scream and I love what Wes Craven did in reigniting a dying industry of slasher flicks. Slasher flicks were not doing too well these days. So he brought it back. He put the defibrillators on it and he zapped it. Whammo! Williamson was going to remove a scene in the school bathroom featuring Sydney. We know this scene. As he felt it was awkward and out of place in the film. Craven insisted the scene should remain as he felt it developed the character and her relationship with her deceased mother. Williamson later confirmed that he was glad Craven proved him wrong. Well, he could just be saying that because it proved to be such a financial success. Do you like the scene in the bathroom where the cheerleaders are shit-talking Sydney's dead mother and then Sydney gets chased or no? I think it's effective. I mean, I was scared the first few times I saw it. It gets the heart pumping. So if that's what he was wanting to do, I think he succeeded. And I think to the best of my recollection, I don't think that was a killer, Stu, or Billy. I think it was a schoolmate that was fucking with Sydney that was just hanging out in the bathroom waiting for his opportunity to scare somebody. The reason I say that is because I don't think Stu would have gone to the bathroom waiting for Sydney, not knowing if she would have gone there or not, and she just ran away from Billy Loomis. How she likes to run for no reason. Just like, Julie James, On a what are you toes. waiting for? I bet her feet are sore from all the running she did, and I know what you did. Awesome. Here's some more of this, this lawsuit bullshit. Sony Pictures filed a lawsuit against Dimension and Miramax, claiming that the title Scream infringed on the copyright of Screamers. You know, 1995 Screamers with Peter Weller. Love that sci-fi horror flick. Peter Weller. Released the previous year. After the case was settled out of court, the details remained confidential. Everybody is so goddamn Scream happy. Scream and Screamers, not the same word. Scream is an act, something that you do. It's not a noun. You scream. But Screamers is a noun, plural. Think about it. Well, it's all about the money. Follow the money! You would appreciate this, Red Devil. The studio felt the strong female cast of Campbell, Barrymore, Cox, and McGowan would help draw a significant female audience to the film. And they were right. They talk about the casting of Jamie Kennedy. They also had in the mind Seth Green. He would have been great. Seth Green, the very lovable short Seth Green. He would have been a great horror movie aficionado to divulge all of horror movie secrets. The thing about Seth Green is he's a small guy. He's a slight guy. But I feel like whenever I've seen him in a film, He's always the guy that's kind of leading the pack of people. He always has people around him, like people like him, you know? Stu Mocker's house, the location of the 40-minute finale of the film, 
took place over 21 nights. This is a good example of a director sticking to his guns. Principal photography for Scream took place over eight weeks. The Weinsteins wanted to film in Vancouver, as it was estimated they could save $1 million in costs compared to shooting in the U.S. However, Craven was adamant about keeping it in the U.S. and making a film that looked truly American. The argument over where to film almost led to Craven being removed, but they eventually conceded, and it was filmed in America. Location scouts looked at North Carolina as a possibility, but found that sites that seemed appropriate for the film's requirements would have required extensive building, etc., and it would have inflated costs. They say that history goes to the victors, but to me, it works out because Craven did not get removed from the project. I don't know what the fuck would have happened if it had. Question. Do you think that the ghost face mask is sufficiently scary? I mean, I can say I wouldn't want to be home alone and then all of a sudden turn around and see that. So, yeah. Well, Bob Weinstein disliked the ghost face mask, said it was not scary. Upon reviewing the dailies footage of the opening scene, the studio was in fact concerned that the film was progressing in an unwanted direction. And again, they considered replacing Craven. And there's a long history behind the mask itself. It was ultimately owned by Fun World, which was a costume company. And Wes Craven tried his hardest to make slight variations to the mask so that he wouldn't have to pay them royalties. And he tried with using deformed faces and monstrous visages riddled with fangs, but he just really liked the ghost face design. And he tried to make enough differences where it would not infringe on copyright, but it just didn't work. He finally got permission from Fun World to use the mask. I mean, yes, it's a horror movie, but it's also like a fun movie. Anything that was too, too, too crazy, I don't think that would have worked. I think the ghost face mask is perfect because it is, yes, it's scary, but it's not so scary. It's like, it just reminds me of exactly what this movie is. A whole bunch of friends just goofing off. I guess some of them are killers, but it's just not over the top scary. And this wasn't an over the top scary movie. Right. The first 10 minutes are sheer horror. And then it gets lighter from there. This is probably the best little tidbit treasure trove of knowledge here. This is the very definition of having the right friends in the right places. Originally, Wes Craven was struggling because the MPAA was insistent that this be an NC-17 film, which would not have been good because it makes it less commercializable and it makes it less universal. It's harder to watch. But Bob Weinstein intervened personally contacted the MPAA as the MPAA felt that it was too intense and too violent. To his credit, Wes Craven made a shitload of cuts to try to get it down to an R rating, but he was still having difficulty. So Bob Weinstein, he explained to the MPAA that he believed they misunderstood the film and they were focusing too much on the horror elements. He explained that although he agreed with their assessment that the film was intense, it also had comedic elements and satire. It was not just a horror film glorifying violence. Guess what? Shortly thereafter, they changed it to R. The power of the Weinstein. I wonder how much money was handed to them to make this decision a little bit more promptly. As always, the trivialized trivia comes from IMBD. A lot of these production and post-production little tidbit trivias are from Wikipedia. But again, that's that score by Marco Beltrami, in addition to the soundtrack, I loved it. I love the shit out of the score. I enjoy the score in all of the Scream movies. And I think more horror movies could use scores that are that unnerving, but enjoyable. Got great reviews, especially for a slasher film, as slasher films are not historically gifted. A lot of showering praise. Horror icon Wes Craven's subversive deconstruction of the genre is sly, witty, and surprisingly effective as a slasher film itself, even if it's a little too cheeky for some. That's from Rotten Tomatoes. Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles Times called Scream a bravura, provocative send-up of horror pictures, and complimented the film for being scary and gruesome. 
Yes. Yes, I love it. Scream received a shit ton of awards and award nominations, including the Saturn Award for Best Actress for Nev Campbell, Best Writing for Kevin Williamson, and Best Horror Film. It received nominations up to Wazoo. The film was awarded the 1997 Best Movie by the MTV Movie Awards, while Campbell received a nomination for Best Female Performance. I wonder who hosted that year. It would have been cool if it was like Jamie Kennedy or something. Saturn Award, Best Actress, Nev Campbell won. Best Direction, Wes Craven nominated. Scream won Saturn Award, Best Horror Film. Best Writing, Kevin Williamson. Great. I love it. I love it. Year Award Recipient Ranking, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills, Scream. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains, Ghostface is listed or nominated. 100 Scariest Movie Moments from Bravo, The Opening Scene. Yeah, no shit. And AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes. Do you like scary movies? I love this flick. I love it. And I'm glad that these sequels have held up. I'm glad that it didn't do what Jack Johnson's albums did and got progressively worse. Now let's wipe the blood off your buck blade in this cat and mouse clone phone charade. I will have you know, Cinematic Fanatics, I own the very buck knife that was used in this film. Not the actual knife used on set. But before this movie even came out, for $40, I saved my money as a wee tot and I purchased a buck knife from Academy. 40 bucks back in the day. And I still have it to this day. I've already wiped all of the fingerprints off of it, of course. But it is the exact knife. It's got the metal handle and it's got a pummel that's got a good weight to it. And it's got that very iconic blade with that little area, that little flat rectangular indention. And it's all used for skinning deer. And I don't know exactly what that, that area is called on the blade, but it serves a purpose for cleaning deer. But it is a buck knife through and through, and I still own it, and I keep it well-oiled and sharp. And I just love that that is the recurring knife in all of the Scream films. If I'm stabbed to death in the future, you know who did it. Fo-ghost face. Fo-ghost face, correct. Correct, Amundo. We start Scream 1996, Dimension. Immediately, the phone rings. We know exactly what is going to be happening in this film. It's going to be a movie that wouldn't exist if there were no phones. I will say, I mean... The way that the franchise has progressed, I think they do a really awesome and effective job of keeping up the creep factor with technology. technology. Yeah. Like in the Scream 5, the when lock, she's trying lock, to lock. lock the door, and then they're like overriding the technology. That made me be like, um, I'm never going to have that. I'm just going to stick with the old school lock and key. Well, and it was subtle at first, but like you get into Scream 2 and Scream 3, and not only do they have the voice modulator... But it can do other people's voices. Like it can record their friends' voices and then call you with that voice. And that wasn't like in the first film. In the first film, they were just simply masking their own voice. And even like cloning the cell phones. Cloning the cell phones is where it really gets interesting because then you're getting text messages from an unlikely source. You can't trust anyone. But it all goes back to, which we're going to be doing, of course, Faux Ghostface, which is our episodic review of Scream, the TV series. Once we finish Baraska, and the last episode of Baraska is coming around the bend. But. Just around the riverbed. I mean, you're the one who said around the bend. It's when Bella Thorne tries to call the authorities. Call 911. Colleen Pottery Barn. She is so so screwed. Attention, cinematic fanatics. Please, please go to Apple Podcast, Chemohawk Sessions, and rate us and leave comments. Your comments can be long-winded. They can be detailed. But we would really like to know how we're doing and if there are any slick flick picks that you would like to hear. I can tell you that to watch the film, sometimes twice, because you watch the director's cut or you watch the behind the scenes with commentary, and to take notes and to write these ridiculously exquisite scripts, it takes anywhere from four to six hours. 
Then I got to record, I got to edit it, which takes another two hours. So all up, it may be 10 hours to deliver one prize slick flick pick review. I am getting no money from this, and it is very time consuming. But I do it for two reasons. One, because I love the fuck out of these slick flick picks. Two, to help you unwind the grind of reality as we enter film's fantasy. So please, if you are listening to this and you've gotten this far in this episode, please go to Apple Podcast. It'll take you anywhere from 45 seconds to two minutes. And please leave comments. People read the comments. They understand kind of where you sit with the episode. And it really makes a difference. I would really appreciate it. Red-headed, blood-red devil would appreciate it. And Ghostface will certainly appreciate it. And Othello. He's asleep right now. Now, there's a scream at the beginning of this film, which is clearly just put in for effect. But it reminds me of the Haunting of Hill House screams at the beginning. So is that some sort of shout out to a former horror movie? Who knows? But we will be discussing that in grand detail as we will be doing a review of the Haunting of Hill House. Of House on Haunted Hill. House on Haunted Hill. I misspoke. It's it's House on Haunted Hill. House on Haunted Hill. House on fucking Haunted Hill. It was on House on Haunted Hill with Vincent Price that you hear screams at the beginning of the film. And I think it's Wes Craven's version of a shout out. You need to relax. House on Haunted Hill. Jeez. Wait, wait. Don't hang up. He sounds so peaceful and tranquil and placid. But he's not. It's a fake. Drew Barrymore, he's being fake and being false with you. Don't believe it. You can hear crickets. There's a swing set and there's a swimming pool. Casey Becker's family ain't hurting on the financial front. And she's popular, so that makes sense. Tell me about the old school popcorn that she's using. At this point, that's oh, yeah. that's full-blown, infinitely iconic. But tell me about it. Is it good? Does it taste good? Yeah, it tastes fine. As long as you don't burn it like she did. Oh, yeah. She burned it to hell. My grandparents, well, eventually they have their own little popcorn maker situation. But yeah, we used to do popcorn that way. You just pop it on there, let it heat up, and it tastes great. And you can get different flavors. She should get blondie flavor. Now, I like how she's playing with the kitchen knife. Hey, we're in a movie. We know it's a horror movie. Laurie Strode should have been playing with this kitchen knife, but she's playing with the kitchen knife and she will not stab a single person. She will just be killed. Also, Scream 5. She also plays with the kitchen knife. Right. I think that's probably just a callback, maybe. But the problem is that Wes Craven had died prior to Scream 5. So I don't know. But I'm seeing that that's happening more and more where these like legacy horror films. Yeah. Some of the shout outs. But some, some of the film crew, they're actually doing posthumously the person who was the original progenitor of these films a service they're not like besmirching their good name is what yeah. i'm saying and i think scream five if i'm wes craven though i'm dead and i'm in my ghost my fogo's face is seeing scream five in the theater i think i'm content i'm content with what they've done with the product dogs are barking she says she has no boyfriend she deserves to die fog outside This fog looks awesome. Does it look as good as John Carpenter's The Fog, 1980? No. But it looks good. I like it. It's these little outdoor shots that just make it feel real. If we never got these outdoor shots and it was just Drew Barrymore in those lavender fucking pants running around. But no, I like it. I like the atmospheric approach. I love the 90s fashion. The sweater that goes like the long arms. Mm, Takes me back. Also, I like that they're talking about these horror movies. They mention Nightmare on Elm Street, and she says the first was good, but the rest sucked. That's funny, because Wes Craven directed Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't know if he directed a lot of the sequels. I know he directed A New Nightmare, which is actually a pretty good Nightmare on Elm Street film. And it's similar to this, because it's like a running gag joke in its own movie. 
I would have liked Nightmare on Elm Street better. I do think it's a scary movie. The first one is good. But do we have to have all like the tongue stuff? Like, ugh. That's, I think now. that's an example at dark humor. But to me, it's such a promising concept. It does not have to be disgusting to be effective. The best parts of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise films are when the kids are awake, or so they think, but they're actually sleepwalking. The way that we know that they learn that they're not in the real world or that they're in the dream world is when weird shit starts happening that could not be explained. But the first Nightmare on Elm Street was good. I like when the body is on the bed and then it gets pulled into the bed and then blood shoots out of the bed. Those are pretty cool effects. But it's really at its core. It's a bunch of kids in a town trying to take notos, trying to stay awake, and trying not to die. And when they're trying to solve the mystery together, that is what I like about the film. Roger Jackson, great fucking voice. Love it. And I love when he says, Blondie? Now, he either sees her, like he said he's been watching her, or he already knew who she was and knew that she had blonde hair. Okay, again, she deserves to die. Casey Becker, she has a tramp stamp. A big, fat tramp stamp. She's as good as dead. I also love when he says, they'd never make it in time. We're out in the middle of nowhere. She's so screwed. And I also love the way he says, you might as well go out to investigate a strange noise or something. Love it. That's where he's like equal parts charming and sinister, and it just works. This fucking film is way violent and is not for children. The first 10 minutes show such extreme violence, I had to look away. It's very disturbing. Whenever you get to the part of entrails, that's when I'm like, okay, this is pretty fucking brutal. Halloween was not like this. I Know What You Did Last Summer is not like this. But Scream, the first Scream, is very violent. The moment that you actually see him in the house, running around after throwing a chair through the window, and the smoke is emanating from the kitchen because of the burnt, crusty popcorn, that's when you know you're in for a hell of a ride. Because you didn't know he was wearing a costume, you just heard a voice on the phone. And part of you probably thought he was just fucking with her from a distance. Oh no, the costume makes it real. And when he turns around, when she's looking at him through the mirror, or through the window, that's pee your pants moment right there. Lemonade time, staring at him through that little glass. What's that little glass window going to do? Nothing, that's what. Also, there's some analysis you can research online where you can kind of track which human is doing which killing. So you can trace it to like, okay, Stu is killing them or Billy's killing them. In this case, it's my understanding that it's Stu killing Casey Becker. But you get thrown off the scent because Rose McGowan says later by the fountain, oh, Stu was with me last night. He was, but not the whole night. And of course, Billy runs over to Nev Campbell's house real quick, like for five minutes, just so that he has an alibi. So these are alibis that they were working on well in advance so that they could kill Casey Becker. Drew Barrymore, gory fucking death, brutal. But she also sees who the killer is. And that was Wes Craven's idea to have her remove the mask. Oh, for my main man, Wham Bam came out there. He has an episode of Audible Ally called, I believe, Removing the Mask. And that's what it just made me think of right now. Hope you're listening to this episode, Wham Bam Cam. Hope you're enjoying the episode. As I know, you, like we, love horror flicks. So enjoy, my good man. Hope you're doing all right. And then the dad, when the parents come home, tells his wife, I want you to drive to the McKenzie's. Okay, how fucking far are they? Jesus. That is a fucked up death stab. I can't even breathe watching this. She's like getting stabbed in her lungs. She's gasping for breath. I'm having flashbacks of my time in the hospital, no doubt. But then she's hanging from a tree and her entrails are draped down like a robe. It is totally fucked. Casey Becker, though she has a tramp stamp, she lied about having a boyfriend, not having a boyfriend, and she's kind of uppity. She did not deserve that death. Shitballs. I like the door trick. I like that Sidney Prescott has this original little door trick where the closet door, when ajar, keeps the main door from opening all the way. 
This, no doubt, will be used not only in this film, but in subsequent films as well. Clever. I believe it is also used in Scream 3 when she's at the movie set of her light, kind, and quality house from the original. And then I love when her dad bursts in, I heard a scream. No, you didn't. Funny. Dad is going to the expo at Hilton by the airport. This will be important later. An important little detective detail. Wonderful song by Gus, Don't Fear the Reaper. I actually prefer this version to the Blue Oyster Cult version. How do you feel about it? Blasphemy. Okay, so you really like that 80s rock. Got it. Came out in the 80s, right? Maybe the 70s? Blue Oyster Cult? Blue Oyster Cult? Yeah, probably 70s. It is a slow, sensual version of the Blue Oyster Cult song, Don't Fear the Reaper. It's also played in an episode of Smallville, season two. The episode is called Precipice. And it's played at a time when Lex Luthor is proposing to Helen, his girlfriend at the time. And it is a very wonderful scene. Marco Beltrani, great fucking score. Love it. It's haunting. It's classic. And it belongs in the upper crust echelon of horror flicks galore. Gail Weathers can pull off a lime green skirt slash suit. She pulls it the fuck off. You love Gail Weathers wardrobes. Other than her bangs in, was it Scream 3? Her outfit, her whole look, it's on point. I think the sexiest and sleekest she ever looked was in Scream 2. Maybe like Dewey, I just like the streaks. I don't know. On the classroom board, you see, planning the three-point essay, statement, three illustration points, and conclusion on the board. It's interesting because this is kind of a three-act play itself, where you have the beginning, you have this catalyst event that drives the plot forward, and then you get the middle section where very little happens, but you have the principal murdered, and then you have the last crazy fuck of a finale climax. In a way, what's on the board in this literature course is acting out on screen. And of course, word of the day, centrifugal. Fascinating. Sheriff Burke and Deputy Riley, Deputy Riley, Deputy Dewey Riley. I love Dewey! Will be one of the most memorable, likable characters in this entire franchise. And sadly, he will not be in Scream 6, as he's already fucking dead. Maybe he's not dead. Maybe not. Maybe. maybe. I love the way this quad looks. It's a great looking quad. You got skateboarders. Again, Skeeter is a great skateboarder name. The fountain looks fucking awesome. Now you said, is it the same fountain as Clueless? I don't know. I never researched that. If you know Cinematic Fanatics, please go on Falsetto Profit on Instagram and let me know. But I do not know if the fountain that these kids are sitting around is in fact the same fountain from the film Clueless. (gasps) As if. Ooh, I want to do Clueless. I'm not inviting you to that though. Thanks. I'll edit it though, because I'm sweet like that. Okay, yeah, you edit it. I'll make you sound so fucking retarded. You need to check yourself. Stu says that it has to be a man that did the killings because killings are of such a barbaric and vicious nature. In a way, that's the film letting you know these are two or at least one male killer. But it's done in a way where then immediately Rose McGowan's like, "Uh, who said it has to be a man? Which then kind of shines a spotlight on her. Like maybe she's the killer. Well, in this film, it is in fact two men. But as the saga will proceed accordingly, they switch it up all the time. But from this moment on, it's going to be either a female and a male, or a lone male, like in Scream 3. But for the vast majority of these films, it's two killers, a penis, and a vagina doing the killing. Oh yeah, that gets an eye roll, but if I said what I really wanted to say, that would get like a slap. So you see my dilemma here, folks. She, Casey Becker, dumped Stu for Steve. Is this a motive? And then he's like, Matthew Lillard, yeah, I dated her for like two seconds. Yeah, whatever, you never got over it, buddy, because you you slaughtered her ass. Rose. McGowan gives an alibi for Stu, but I think she's actually telling the truth. I think I've been able to discern that he was with her, but just not for very long. 
Sydney Prescott rides the bus. Red Devil, did you ride the bus? Uh, yeah, I was never a car rider. There are balcony stairs outside. I love the view of Sydney Prescott's house. That's got to be a $3.7 million house at least. Oh, and then there's these little wooden ducks in the house. That reminds me when we were at that creepy ass cabin up in Maine, the loon that was in the house that your dad was like, oh my God, it's a decoy duck. It's so cool. So cute. The sunset is gorgeous. We hear an owl. Hoot, hoot. It's great. Great sound effects. And then irony. There's this great music, and she just talked about how these dumb, big-breasted bimbos run up the stairs instead of leaving the house. Neve, Nev Campbell, will in fact run up the stairs. How about that? And I love that when she talks about how she's picking her nose on the phone, she's actually picking her nose. What am I doing? What am I doing? And her knuckle is like practically up her nostril. It's, it's ridiculous. Now, she calls this person on the phone a cretin. That is not a word that gets used a lot, but it actually means a stupid person or a blockhead. That reminds me, whenever we're watching Are You Afraid of the Dark and all the funny 90s mumbo jumbo and insults, dweeb. Yeah, like cheese head, hose brain, fart knocker. <laughs> That's great. It also happened a lot in Sandlot. The catcher. You squid. Yeah. Let me think of one from Are You Afraid of the Dark. Yeah, what's the one I'm trying to think of? You zero. Oh, zeeb. Oh, yeah, zeeb. That's a good one. You're such a zeeb. Good times. Okay, the killer is in the house. That's ironic. Because Stu is in the house. and he, I mean, Billy's in the house and he's a killer. Way to hold a mask, Dewey, you fucktard. Don't hold masks like that. He's holding the mask up like it's going to answer the door, like through the peephole, this dude. Okay, that is a very appropriate car for Tatum Riley. Don't you agree? Little car she's driving. It's got like a Volkswagen bug. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bug. Yep. Yes, Doofus. I love how she calls him Doofus. And then I love how Deputy Dewey, well, I love how he's called Dewdrop in Scream 3 by the bodyguard. He just calls him Dewdrop and I like that. A cellular phone instead of a cell phone. That's what they call it in this film. It's like, you've got a cellular phone, bro. Gail Weathers, that is a hell of a name for storm reporting. I wonder if she got her start storm reporting, like following hurricanes and tornadoes and shit, maybe? Meteorological. I love the line, a janitor is your superior. That's Dewey's sister talking to Dewey in a disrespectful way. We get some skateboarding and we get the great song, Red Right Hand, which is one of my favorites. Red Right Hand is a song you have to listen to around Halloween. We only briefly see on TV Liv Schreiber, great actor. He will get more of a screen time in Scream 2, and he will have a hell of a scene in Scream 3. But I liked his character as Cotton Weary. Neve, or Nev Campbell, looks pretty in her red blood shirt. And she has a cool jacket. And then I love the line that Matthew Lillard says, Yeah, after you branded him Candyman, his heart's broken. <laughs> what a jerk. What do you think the mascot is for Woodsboro High? I think it's a ghost face. What do you think? One year of Sidney Prescott's mother's death happens tomorrow. Significance, just like what they did with the Halloween franchise, where they started making the killer, Michael Myers, closer and closer to a familial relation with Laurie Strode. Oh, and this is funny. When they're having their little tete-a-tete, that's Billy Loomis and Sidney Prescott in the hallway. Skeet Ulrich says, when my mother left, I just got over it. No, he didn't. Lies. You're a liar, Skeet. You never got over your mother leaving. And that's why, that's why you're a killer. And then, of course, we have number one, Nev Campbell running away. So we're going to cheers, just like with Julie James. She's running for no reason, unless she's got loose booty syndrome and she's headed to that bathroom for an emergency situation. There's no reason for her to run from Billy Loomis to the bathroom when it's 20 feet away. And this scene is how I knew she had a dance background, because she runs on her tippy toes. I knew in this scene, once she gets to the bathroom, that she is a retard because she gets into the handicapped bathroom stall. Why? 
more room, more she, space. She, she runs like a retard. To that's do what items. I put. <laughs> she runs, that's why she. I'm sorry, but it's true. She got in the handicap. You're not bathroom. supposed to make retard jokes. When I make retard jokes, they do not actually pertain to people that have lacking mental faculties. They are specifically tailored and designed for those motherfuckers out there that have a standard IQ and they act like fucktards. It's a derogatory comment about people that deserve derogatory comments. Thank you. Her mother's a slut. <laughs> Man, if you could list the amount of times that Sydney's mother has aspersions cast against her good reputation, you could be drunk as a skunk, fallen off of a tree log. Everyone is so harsh on Sydney Prescott's mother, it's ridiculous. And in Scream the TV series with Emma's mother, it's the same thing. Your mother's a whore. Your mother's a whore. <laughs> and it's so funny. It's so funny. Okay, great bathroom scene. Who is in the bathroom? It cannot be Billy nor Stu. Most likely, my opinion, it's some fucktard at the school that the principal will threaten later. Now, the principal was killed for a very specific reason. And I love all the buildup that leads to him getting killed. He sees a guy in the hallway. He's wearing a black and red horizontally striped sweater who looks just like Freddy Krueger. And that's hilarious because that's also Wes Craven, the director. And it's clearly a shout out to Freddy Krueger. Harry Winkler, the Fonz, got it because they hadn't killed anybody. And this is a slasher film. He had to get got. Also, he serves as a plot fulcrum to drive the boys that are at Stumacher's house later and some of the women away from the house to go investigate the body that is hanging from the fucking football goalpost. I love the line, Deputy Dewey. I'm 25. I was 24 for a whole year. I am buying their charm and their chemistry together. Gail Weathers, Deputy Dewey, it works. It's no wonder always they worked. fell in love in real life. Yep. Similar to Sarah Michelle Gellar and Freddie Prince Jr. Yo. And I know what you did last summer. School's out for summer. I love that scene. I love the two girls hanging out on the front porch, listening to Alice Cooper, and they get a break. They get a brief reprieve from school, and they're just talking, you know, talking about Sydney's mother being a whore, trying to figure things out, and I love it. I also love the comment that Gail Weathers is a tabloid twit. That is fantastic alliteration, or awesome alliteration, if you want to keep the alliteration alive. Get it? Alive is also starts with an A. Yeah, A-A-A. Oh, and I love how they say... <laughs> I believe that Tatum says Wes Carpenter, <laughs> which is a co-mingling of horror directors' names. And I love it because we have done a John Carpenter flick with The Fog, and we have done a Wes Craven flick with Scream. There you have it. They show this killer in the woods, and that's a holy shit moment. You are not expecting to see him in the woods, but there he is hunting with his buck knife for deer named Sidney Prescott. This is where things get interesting. Jamie Kennedy tells us it's Billy Loomis. And that the dad is a blood red herring. So true. He just doesn't know it yet. And I love the town that dreaded sundown reference. That's actually a halfway decent movie slasher film. The fucking ghost face killer is in the grocery store. How can he walk along the grocery store aisles with not being seen? They're in the frozen food section, for Christ's sake. Because it's a movie. You're right. Now, what did these two girls get for the party? Popsicles. And I think it's funny that they get popsicles, which part of the word is sickles, as in sickle, as in a weapon, as in a weapon brandished by a religious zealot in Children of the Corn, which they are just releasing another remake of. Can't wait. What's another thing? Okay. Nobody cares about the town of Woodsboro. Okay. Cheers. Woodford Reserve. Woodsboro. Heyo. The sheriff litters. He throws his fucking cigarette on the ground. The guy throws his bag of ruffles out the news station van on the way to Stu Mocker's house. Why is everybody littering? Oh, ruffles. Yummy. But what is it with the littering? They all deserve to die. Kenny, he gets it because he littered. That's why he dies. Why does your brain more get it? Because she's a slut with her little trampy stampy. 
I love how the deputy is at this house where they're clearly high schoolers, so they have to be under the age of 21. Grab a beer for me, would you? Are you kidding me? I guess the idea is that it's better that they're at this house drinking safe than roaming the countryside. I guess that's well, the idea. And I think this type of thing is probably more prevalent across the United States than our experience. I don't know. I was a goody two-shoes, so. I mean, I don't even think I had my first sip of alcohol until like a few months before my 21st birthday. So that gives you a reference. Well, plus it's more apropos. I mean, you can't have this killer going around stalking librarians in the library working on the Dewey Decimal System and the microfiche. It's just not as glamorous. Billy Loomis kills Tatum in the garage. I believe the clue that it's Billy that kills Tatum in the garage. Oh, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. Let me give you a name for your costume. I think it's because about 10 minutes or 20 minutes later, Stu answers the door and Billy's there. And Billy gives him a look like, hey, you know that thing you want me to take care of? I just took care of it, motherfucker. So that's the clue that it was Billy that killed Tatum while Stu was commingling. Red Devil, did you have a friend that had something to do with a garage door? That tried to go through a garage door or that had an incident with a garage door? She refused to walk underneath a garage door because, because of, this film? of this film. Yes. Oh, wow. Interesting. And then, like I said, Billy looks down at the mention of Tatum. And then there's a comment that Gail will draw blood. Irony, because if they see Gail here, they will draw blood. They find Neil Prescott's car. Holy fucking shit. He either never left or he's come back. You know, like Michael Myers. He's come home. He's come home. Oh my god, it's Neil Prescott's car interrupting this kiss between Deputy Dew and Gail Weathers. I love the killer wiping the blade of its blood. Very similar to I Know What You Did Last Summer, but far sleeker. The killer uses his cloak sleeve costume to just quickly wipe the blood away. You know, to look sleek and cool and shit. And I know what you did last summer. I felt like it was more of a functional approach than he used with like his fucking hanky or something. Not the same. Now, this is a rare instance where we're enjoying a movie within a movie within a movie. And that movie is Halloween. One of our favorites. Knife in the back. Dewey's fucked up. Now, how creepy did you think that Jeep scene was where Nev Campbell is in the Jeep and he keeps fucking with her? And when he slings the keys against the glass, boom, 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 boom. I got the keys. Or he, he actually tapped it with his butt knife and then he like went, hey, who has the keys? I have the keys. Not cool. Not cool at all. I'm at Stu's house. He's trying to kill me, says Sidney Prescott into the radio in this police vehicle. But that is all about the intentionality of the message. Remember, audience and cinematic fanatics, it's about radical intentionality. If all they hear on that recording is, I'm at Stu's house, he's trying to kill me. Who's trying to kill you? The cops now think Stu's trying to kill you. Which, to her credit, Stu is trying to kill her. If the message should be, I'm in danger, send cops. The way she phrased that, you would think Stu was the killer. But at this point, she didn't know that Stu was the killer. So, just saying. And then we get this great line delivered with this ferocious delivery. Cold, deadpan, Ted Bundy style. Tell that to Cotton Weary. That statement is uh, but a brief volume of words, but it speaks volumes. Good line, Skeeter. Skeet and Stew the Goo. We killed her exactly one year ago today. Cindy's mother, they did. Those animals. You gotta have a sequel. These days, it's all about the sequel. This is where Matthew Lillard just goes off the fucking rails and everybody loves it. My mom and dad are gonna be so mad at me. Oh, yeah, that would have been a good contender for a favorite line. It's great acting. They're crazy. And I remember how disturbing it was when Sydney immediately tries to run away from Billy after he shoots Jamie Kennedy. And then Stu is just standing there. 
And he just kind of has this deadpan expression on his face. And in that moment, you know he's the other killer. And you realize officially there are two killers. Two killers! I mean, I never would have guessed the first time I saw this movie. I call Billy and Stu their bromance. I call it star-slashed lovers. Watches too much TV, does Stu. He no doubt does. And then we get the ending when Sidney Prescott dresses up and she gets to give them a little dose of their own ghost face. And it's fucking awesome. That's where you get a little bit more cat and then they become the mouse and they both die gruesome fucking deaths. Especially Skeet Ulrich. When he's already got that wound from the sharp, old-fashioned, old-school umbrella blade that, like, you know, Penguin would use in Batman. And then she, like, sticks her finger in the wound. It's fucking brutal. And then we get this great closing song, First Cool Hive by Moby. Now, if you're doubting the value of Moby, I recommend you Cinematic Fanatics go back in time a little bit, one year before Scream, and you watch a film called Heat, where Moby also did a song in that film. Might have even been a couple of songs, but it's that closing song when Robert De Niro is looking at Al Pacino, they're holding hands, Robert De Niro is slowly dying, he's slumping over, and he says, told you I was never going back. And then this song, not this song, but another song by Moby is playing. It's very emotionally inspiring. Great ending, lots of wounds, lots of blood, graphic and disturbing. I love Scream. And they would then crank out the sequel almost immediately. I mean, it was a ridiculously fast turnaround time. From the moment that Scream was released to when Scream 2, the direct sequel, was released, I think it was less than eight months. And that is insanity when you look at the quality of Scream 2, which then you would further research and realize that Kevin Williamson actually did it as kind of a three film deal where he not only did he provide the script for Scream, but he provided like about five pages of the beginning of what the next two sequels would be. So they had kind of a a rough outline of what to work off of. Now, Roger Ebert, the man, the myth, three out of four stars, which is very good for a slasher. Wes Craven's Scream violates one of the oldest rules in movie history. It's about characters who go to the movies. They've even heard of movie stars. They refer by name to Tom Cruise, Richard Gere, Jamie Lee Curtis. They analyze motivations. Those movies were about the act of going to the movies. Scream is about knowledge of the movies. The characters in Scream are in a horror film. And because they've seen so many horror films, they know what to do and what not to do. Don't say I'll be right back, one kid advises a friend. Because whenever anybody says that, they never come back. Scream is self-deconstructing. It's like one of those cans that heats its own soup. Scream is not about the plot. It is about itself. In other words, it's about characters who know they are in a plot. The movie is also knowledgeable about the way TV reporters are portrayed in horror films. The reporter this time, played by Courtney Cox, asks wonderful questions, such as, how does it feel to almost be the victim of a slasher? (laughs) Savvy as she is, she nevertheless suggests to a local deputy that they shouldn't drive to an isolated rural setting when it's a nice night to walk down a deserted country road in the dark while a slasher is loose. Idiot. What did I think about this movie? Asks Ebert to himself. As a film critic, I liked it. I liked the end jokes and the self-aware characters. At the same time, I was aware of the incredible level of gore. It is really violent. Is the violence diffused by the ironic way the film uses it and comments on it? For me, it was. For some viewers, perhaps like Blood Red Devil, Red Right Hand Devil over here, it will not be. And they will be horrified. Now, Red Devil, I love this film. I now have two screen posters that I'm very proud of framed in my studio. I have this great Toonie Terror action figure of Ghostface running in his clogs. Do you have any last minute footnotes or thoughts about this slick flick pick scream? I absolutely do. So as I'm watching Othello here, 
with his support of this specific podcast episode, I couldn't help but notice he is black and white, just like Ghostface. And then that got me thinking, how cute would he be dressed up like Ghostface? We could get him like a little Ghostface mask and then drape a little black robe on him. Do you think he'd like that? If he could cloak himself in it and hide from the surroundings and from us, maybe. Hmm. But it absolutely would be undeniably cute. Also, don't forget Ghostface behind you. I drew Ghostface, and that will be posted on Instagram. And I think it's worth it. Yep. It's just, it's a pencil on paper, and I'm pretty goddamn proud of it. Yes, yes, I am. Kind of like when a vampire's coming at you and you hold up a cross to scare the vampire away. If Ghostface was running at me, I would hold up a drawing of him and he would freak out. He would have an identity crisis of sorts, a crisis of conscience, and I would be spared. Spared, like Randy Meeks was spared until he was shot, but he was shot in the shoulder. Now, when he flew back 15 feet from that shot, that was pretty intense. Give me 15 feet. This lanky, dreamy, slash screamy, pale-faced, life-erasing, hot, Rose McGowan bod-facing, ghost-facing, nev-chasing, creeping reaper must be kept at bay. If they're bloody slick horror flick games you choose not to play, you're rolling your own mortal dice that you, they won't slice, slay, and fillet. But unlike the subsequent summer's hookman, they won't keep you on ice, for they're not as kind, sweet, or nice. Sydney's a looker and a have. Poor Billy's a have not. But Maureen was a hooker who fatefully shared the last name Prescott. In this sleepy West Coast hamlet, these bodies will rot, for in this desert climate it proves rather hot. But this slick slasher unveils two lean, lanky slashers, not just one like we thought. Remember, cinematic fanatics, these masked maniacs' voices are never their own. They like you home, dig you alone, but they truly, gone madly, stab deeply, love you home alone. When full fucking beer bottles make contact, Ghostface does groan. If you pay full price on attention and painstakingly watch what is shown, the slasher's ID should not go unknown. To blood-red herrings we are prone such as his cell phone proving a clone. But for our own mistakes, we now atone and admit to you, bloody slick flick ice-picking fans, that we should have known. Whether you dream a nightmare dream or scream a dead-air scream, the stilly slash bistu bromance proves its own meme, for they make quite a murderous, bicurious, injurious, as furious as they are a spurious team. Whether knife, noose, garage fucking door, or gun, this slash gash blood splash home alone phonathon is fun. We remain always your fellow fiends for film, your worthwhile cinephiles, while you are our cinematic fanatics. Keep that popcorn fresh, or at least edible, for our next slick F-Stars pick, pick 26. Slick Flick Pick, Clint's Finger Gun, and His Unforeseen Son, Gran Torino, 2008, which not only will be my second Clint's Film Gamut series, where we discuss a film that Clint Eastwood is involved in, but it will have the oral pleasure of Brother Clint. I know, you think it's Clint Eastwood, it's not, but it's my brother Clint, and he's even cooler than Clint Eastwood. Oh, I just thought of something. Clint Eastwoodsboro. Boom. Boom. Minds collectively blown. Falsetto and Red Devil out. <laughs> <laughs>